A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the Karma You podcast. This is your host, Chloe Brotheridge. I am a coach, I'm a hypnotherapist, and I'm the author of The Anxiety Solution and my latest book, Brave New Girl, Seven Steps to Confidence. Thank you so much for listening today. I hope you're doing really well. I'm really excited about today's guest. It's Natasha Devon, who is many, many things. She's a writer, a speaker, a campaigner. She also has an MBE, casual. And she is an activist. She goes into schools and colleges throughout the UK, delivering talks, as well as conducting research on mental health, body image, gender and social equality. She's basically pretty amazing. And I love this conversation. She is a fascinating person, super smart, super funny. And she's had her own experiences with anxiety as well. She's the author of the book, beginner's guide to being mental and a to z which i thought was absolutely brilliant and so some of the things that natasha and i talk about are this really common question that both of us get asked which is the difference between normal anxiety and anxiety the mental health condition we talk about the shocking link between perfectionism and mental health and natasha shared something that i'd had a sense of but hadn't really realized the extent of it and it's so so interesting we also talk about whether social media really is the big baddie when it comes to mental health or are there other things maybe to blame? We get into that conversation. We even get into the very, very juicy topic of capitalism and anxiety. She shares her own tips for handling anxiety. We talk about workplaces and mental health, plus loads more. So before we get into the interview with Natasha Devon, I just want to let you know that I have another challenge coming up. It is the Karma You Anxiety Challenge and it is starting on Monday the 9th of September 2019 and my last challenge that I ran was a confidence challenge and it went down so incredibly well. I got such good feedback. People really said that the challenge had started to change their lives and had made such a difference and we had 1500 people join the last challenge. The Facebook group was so supportive, so inspiring and I've decided to do it, do it again for the topic of anxiety rather than confidence this time. So if you want to join me you can enter your email address at karmau.com forward slash challenge and I will send you all the details and you'll be on the list receiving 
daily tips and tools to manage your anxiety, become a calmer person. You'll be invited to our private Facebook group where we'll be having some discussions. We'll be giving support to one another, connecting as a community. So it's going to be a brilliant week. So I hope you'll join me on the 9th of September. Head over to karmayou.com forward slash challenge to sign up and it's totally free. So let's get into the interview with Natasha. This week's episode of the Karma You podcast is sponsored by Pucker Herbs. I'm really excited to share that Pucker have launched a new tea, Peace, an innovative hemp blend to promote calm, which can be enjoyed throughout the day. It has become part of my routine to enjoy in stressful moments or when I want to switch off after a day of work. Even its beautiful packaging has a calming effect when I see it on my shelf. Peace tea truly is nature's antidote to everyday challenges. The ingredients are 100% organic and ethically sourced, which means it's not only great for you, but also the planet. So Peace tea contains ashwagandha, an ingredient I recommend to all my clients. It naturally improves energy and calms the nervous system. Chamomile, one of the most widely used relaxing herbs around the world. And hemp leaf, a variety of the cannabis sativa plant species. You've probably heard of the calming effects of CBD, a non-psychoactive component of hemp, and the tea contains CBD plus other calming essential oils from hemp. This blend supports the mind and body's ability to cope with, adapt to, and look beyond daily stresses. Perfect for busy 21st century living. Peace Tea is available to buy at Sainsbury's and Tesco's, and I hope you love it as much as I do. Welcome, Natasha. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm really well, thanks. How are you? I'm good. I'm really good. I'm happy it's Friday. Um, Please, can you tell us, I'm sure lots of people do know who you are, but can you tell us what it is that you do and how you got to where you are today? That's a more complicated question than you know. It takes ages to explain what I do because it's a made up job. Um, So essentially, I I go into schools and colleges all over the UK and sometimes beyond in the wider world. And when I'm in there, I deliver talks on things related to mental health, like body image and exam stress and um, being LGBTQ and gender equality. But I also, and this is probably the more crucial aspect of my job, is I conduct research with 14 to 18 year olds. And it's really sort of loose and qualitative. We just have focus groups and I ask them about um, what changes they'd like to see in their community and what the barriers are to them being well and happy. And then I feed that information back. So if I'm seeing patterns throughout certain areas of the country or even throughout the whole country I feed that information back to a number of different organizations that I work with in return for which they provide me with my training and continuing professional development there you go that's the longest job title ever I I, you could have gone on longer because I think I can list a few other things author um you're on the telly yeah speaking on the news and like all those sorts of things I loved your book thank you I absolutely loved it a beginner's guide to being mental and a to z It is not only very helpful, but very funny and very interesting. I found myself just, oh, my God, that's such an interesting fact. Or, yeah, so, so many interesting things there. So thank you for writing that. And um, I noticed as well that you're an eldest child. And I'm an eldest child. And so is Sarah Wilson, another um, someone who's written a book about anxiety. Jane Hardy, another eldest child. I think there's definitely something in that, isn't there, that... The eldest child like experiences more anxiety than other people. I think you can feel a responsibility to fix everything and look after everyone. Particularly for me, I felt that because I'm much older than my siblings. I don't know about you, but there's a big gap between me and my brothers. 
I'm just two years older. Okay. Yeah, but I think for me it was, yeah, I don't know, just having a mum who was quite stressed, a dad who worked away a lot, and my parents are amazing, and I had a very, like, like lucky childhood in lots of ways but I think I took it upon myself to be like the responsible one to look after other people so I think that's a pattern (laughs) definitely yeah definitely I I can relate to that a lot and actually um I did a podcast recently uh called Berkhamsted Revisited which is where they're they're talking about their teenage um experiences and they asked me what I was like as a teenager and people always compared me and my mum to Edwina and Safi from Absolutely Fabulous because I was so sensible and right. not normal. Like I didn't rebel in any way other than being ridiculously studious. Right. Wow. That's so interesting. <laughs> and another thing I wanted to ask you about was um about how you've talked about The fact that you go on TV, you talk in front of people all the time, um, and that doesn't really sort of affect you in terms of anxiety. Can you talk about that, but other things might instead? Yeah, I've always been able to public speak ever since I was a kid. That hasn't phased me, really. I, I think the general rule with me is the smaller the group, the more excruciating I find it. So for me, my the things that I've really had to overcome in terms of anxiety is, for example, walking into a room full of people that I don't know and having to strike up a conversation with someone one-to-one. That's far more daunting to me than walking into a room full of people I don't know and having to do a speech in front of all of them. And the last time I had a panic attack, it was a combination of it was really hot, I was premenstrual, and I do think that hormones play a massive role in mental health. Massive, And um, I thought I'd lost my anti-anxiety medication um it's tiny things really mm. and I hadn't even lost it I just you know when you, you're looking and then you start to panic more and more and then you get almost like a, a kind of tunnel vision at the beginning of a panic attack so I just couldn't see them and the combination of those three things caused me to have a panic attack but things that maybe a quote-unquote normal person <laughs> would feel panicked about don't really bother me it's so interesting the way that anxiety can express itself in different ways, in mm. different situations. And it's really easy to look at someone and just assume because they seem calm on the outside that they have it all together or they never struggle with anything. But often, you know, you don't necessarily know that someone is suffering from anxiety or, you know, you can't even mm. tell if someone's having a panic attack sometimes. They can just, no. it's really an internal thing at times and you wouldn't even know. That's so true. And uh, I think people need to separate out in their heads your level of anxiety and your level of confidence because actually they're not the same thing. They they can be interlinked, but they're two distinct things. And certainly in my experience, I know a lot of people who appear very outwardly confident, but inside there's this, I call them the washing machine thoughts, you know, the thoughts that go round and round and round in your head. Oh my gosh, I'm familiar, I'm familiar. <laughs> <laughs> um, why do you think we are so anxious as a society? Um, I think the modern world doesn't afford many opportunities to take stock and process. Um, That's why I think so many people have taken solace in mindfulness. Mindfulness shouldn't be something that you actively have to strive for. Mindfulness is a byproduct of just living well and having leisure time and the opportunity to, you know, exercise and relax. But because of the the very fraught lifestyles that we live, 
it's something that we actually have to carve time out for. And, it, and it's completely essential because your brain needs time to compute and to look at what it's learned that day and what's useful for the future and what to store in your long-term memory and what it doesn't really need anymore. But we're so switched on all the time. And because we live in a kind of uber-capitalist neoliberal culture as well, we're taught that the individual is paramount, that the harder you work, the more virtuous you are, the more stuff you have, the more successful you are, and that you should never just be content with what you have. And those are all really anxiety-inducing concepts. I'm really glad you mentioned capitalism, because I was going to mention that or ask you about that, because you wrote about that in your book. Um, a lot of people probably aren't even aware that this is a thing that can affect mental health. I never really thought of it that way. And I mm. saw a meme, you know, going around Instagram the other day, which was, you know, signs that you've internalised capitalism. And one of them is um, thinking that your worth is dependent on how hard you work and um, things like that. Um, can you talk a little bit more about about that? It's really interesting. I I have another book coming out in April next year, which is for young people. And it's about, um, well, it's called Acing Your Exams Without Losing Your Mind. And it's essentially wow. about how looking after your mental health can make you cleverer. And it's not a, it's not a choice between your well-being and your academic success, that those two things are actually, they, they overlap. And as part of that book, I interviewed um, a guy called Thomas Curran, who has recently done a TED talk, but he's an expert on perfectionism. And what his research shows is the higher you score on a perfectionism test, the more vulnerable you are to mental ill health. And when he says perfectionism, what he means is things like you're never, uh, you never think anything that you do is quite good enough. Um, other people's opinions of you are very important in terms of how you define yourself and how you value yourself. And also um, the, the kind of acid test of perfectionism is you will sometimes avoid activities because you suspect that you won't be very good at them. And the current generation, sort of Generation Z, I think we're on now, mm. are off the scale in terms of perfectionism. And Thomas Curran's theory is it's because they have been born into this world of smartphones, social media and unbridled capitalism and have imbibed from a very early age this idea that they have to be in perpetual motion, perpetually achieve in order to be worthy. And that's actually backed up by some research that was done in a school up north where they were trying to look at, you know, where does this pressure um, to, to attain academically come from. And, you know, if you ask teachers, they'll say it's parents. If you ask parents, they'll say it's teachers. But what this research showed was actually it was self-perpetuating. It was coming from the young people themselves. And their parents and their teachers were saying, it's okay, slow down. You know, life's not all about grades. You need to enjoy your, yourselves too. But they couldn't hear that because they had this voice inside them that was telling them that they had to prove themselves constantly. Oh my gosh, that's yeah, really fascinating and and scary. Yeah, I do think of, you know, if I think of my own teenage years, there was a lot of pressure then, but there must be a lot more with social media and with, you know, the rise in perfectionism for the, the younger generations. Um, and I can definitely relate to that that sense of perfectionism, even though I'm not somebody that has a tidy desk or like color codes their books on their shelf. But for me, it would be like. I need to like control myself so that I don't make any mistakes and that other people can't see me make a mistake or think of me as being you know imperfect that would be a horrible thing so that's how it kind of manifested for me so if people listening are thinking I'm not a perfectionist because of you know I'm 
my hair's a mess. Um, <laughs> we, it can manifest in so many different ways, can't it? Definitely. And the thing is, is that you learn through your mistakes and life is messy. And some of the most successful and creative people have said that actually it's their failures that have allowed them to go on and create a successful business or some brilliant art. So if you never let yourself fail, you never let yourself attain your potential either. Yes, totally, totally. Um, okay, so capitalism, perfectionism. What about social media? Because mm. social media gets demonised, doesn't it? It gets blamed for everything. Um, what are your opinions on social media? Um, I think, well, you'd have to be an idiot, wouldn't you, to say that social media hasn't had a really profound effect on the way that we live and communicate and think. But... I also feel that it's a very convenient scapegoat sometimes. So to give you an example, um, about two years ago now, I was at this conference and there was a government representative there and he had this graph and the graph literally showed that in 2010, incidents of anxiety and self-harm started to rise really dramatically in teenagers. And he said, and of course, we're blaming this on the smartphone. And I thought, I bet you are, <laughs> because that conveniently absolved him of having to consider that austerity measures kicked in in 2010 and there's an established link between poverty and poor mental health. And also what austerity did in terms of children's communities, you know, less educational psychologists, less school nurses, less school counsellors, less social services, children and adolescent mental health services. And also it's when Michael Gove came in and made everything more again quote unquote academic so you know this rise in exam stress i always say it's not the exams in of themselves it's the fact that everything about your school experience points at this one day and you're preparing for it so young now you know take your gcse choices a year earlier now in in year nine the beginning of year nine instead of the beginning of year 10. Um, so all of that, you know, you put that all together and of course you're going to see a rise in anxiety. And I, my feeling is that social media kind of holds a mirror up to that, but it's not necessarily causing it. There are a couple of things I think if you're being cyberbullied or if social media is interfering with the amount of sleep you get, then you can say there's a definite causal link there with poor mental health. But other than that, it's like anything else. It depends on how and why you use it. Yeah, definitely. Um, do you, what's your personal relationship with social media? Do, are you somebody that is, and I know you're on Twitter a lot, so yeah. enjoy your tweets very <laughs> Thank much. You. Um, do you have boundaries around it? How do you manage it for yourself? I, Twitter is my platform you know how everyone has their platform um i think it, people are a lot more interested in what i have to say than how i look um so my my instagram following is relatively smaller but i find that i'm a lot more um three-dimensional on instagram on twitter i tend to talk about work occasionally i'll say oh, i'm watching this tv show or something but it's mostly to do with politics or mental health on Instagram, I'll post pictures of me hanging out with the cat <laughs> and things like that. So I, I guess I use those two platforms in different ways. I, I came off Facebook because it just annoyed me too much. Uh -huh. You know when people post a picture of their kids and say, I love my children, and you think, I assumed that. <laughs> <laughs> why, why, 
why, why is this a thing? Yeah. And I just found that people who were sort of dear to me, I was becoming very irritated with them. It wasn't great for our relationships. So I've come off Facebook. Yeah, that's probably a good move, I think. Facebook can either be, yeah, annoying or quite depressing because everyone is... I mean, I want to know about what's happening in the world, but some, t- some days it's like every single post is like these things or, yeah, people's children or their wedding or something like that. So, yeah, good for you for leaving <laughs> it behind. Um, I really wanted to know about your more about your work in schools because it sounds so valuable and so needed and good for you for, for doing that work. What, what is that like? What's your experience of that? I'm at a really strange place now where I would say the levels of awareness and emotional literacy amongst teenagers is very high and often what I'm doing is I'm trying to get their parents to understand the world in the same way as their children do and if you think about it it should be the other way around Mm. but uh, I would say teenagers now are very good at identifying and describing their in an emotional landscape. What they're less good at is connecting to it. So uh, to give you an example, just last term, this young woman came up to me after class and she said, um, oh, I just want to tell you a little bit about my experience. Um, I've been having uh, psychosis because uh, my dad took his own life a year ago and there's a part of my unconscious that thought that that was my fault. So now, every time I'm trying to get to sleep, I see my father and he's shouting at me that it's my fault that he died. And she literally said it like I just said it to you. Mm. And I was listening to this person talk thinking, you really need to grieve and cry and emote but because you've got this sophisticated language to describe your experiences it's almost like disconnecting you from what you're actually feeling so I think the challenge with them is to get them to be in the moment and then the challenge with their parents is to get to increase the emotional literacy okay interesting what why do you think we're not very good at at processing our emotions do you think it's because I notice myself sometimes if I'm I know I've had an argument with my boyfriend and I'll subconsciously reach for my phone just to escape the Mm. situation and not have to deal with it and have to feel the uncomfortable feelings and I think we're very good at distracting ourselves and numbing and um yeah what what do you think about what why aren't we very good at that I I think it it's about, I mean, I know you've had Sheru Azadi on this podcast before and she talks about proximity. There's, we're so close to a, a plethora of distractions. They're everywhere. You know, you can't walk down the street. There's, you know, there's food, there's alcohol, there's your phone. You know, there's so many things that you can do to take the edge off. And as human beings, we want to insulate ourselves from difficult feelings. Of course we do. We want to protect ourselves from pain. But all we're really doing is delaying that pain and storing it up. And the way that I describe it to young people is I say, you know, what's the first thing that you learn about energy in science? And they're like, that it can't be destroyed. And I'm like, okay, so now imagine that your feelings are energy. What you do then when you ignore your feeling is you just store that energy up and it grows and grows and grows and grows. So those little micro experiences can multiply into something that's really toxic and damaging if you don't take the time to, for example, write it down or go for a run or just do something to turn that energy into something else and give it back to the universe. 
Okay, so we're just keeping it inside and it manifests as tension or anxiety yeah. or feeling down or whatever it is because we're not we're not so good at actually focusing on it. So we need to let that energy flow. So you'd recommend things like writing down feelings. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, there's lots of different things that um, people cite as being cathartic and they don't necessarily have to be the things that you automatically think of like you don't have to go to therapy it's just anything that allows you to be mindful and process um, for me I have two things that I would say allow me to maintain emotional fitness one is having a pet animals are magic yes and the other is running Mm. which I'm not good at. And that's the other thing as well. You, you know, if you are have a tendency towards perfectionism, it's really important to have an activity that you're doing regularly that you are not the best at. And it just has intrinsic value. That's a really important lesson for people to learn. Mm, okay. Yeah, because I was just thinking about times in the past where I've done something like a dance class and really noticed that feeling coming up in me that's, oh, I'm not good at this. Mm. I don't like this. I want to run away. But it's actually good for us to do something that is, you know, we're just doing it for the joy of it or that it has other value rather than us being good at it. Yeah. And you're challenging yourself to go outside of your comfort zone. Yes. And I'm all about that. Constantly uncomfortable and constantly <laughs> challenging myself. Um, so what else? What else is important to you right now? Wow, that's, <laughs> that's a big <laughs> very question. Broad. I've left that very yeah. broad to just I mean, uh, see I, what you might come up with. I have been going into schools now for more than a decade and I'm getting to a stage where the teenagers are saying you really remind me of my mum <laughs> which I think as much as you know everybody needs a mum it's kind of uh, you lose some cool points <laughs> and there's a new generation of people who are in their early 20s who are saying to me I really want to do what you do. So I co-founded um, an organisation called the Speakers Collective with Johnny Benjamin, who I don't know if you've heard of him. Um, he's a he's another mental health campaigner, does a lot of work around um, suicide prevention. And the Speakers Collective, there are about 25 of us and we all have two or more years of experience of speaking about mental health and related issues. But the aspect of the organisation that really excites me is that we have these, we call them associates, but they are people who don't have any experience, who join the organisation to be mentored so that they can eventually start speaking about mental health. So I feel like what I'm trying to do at the moment is hand the baton over, get my foot soldiers. Yeah, I will always want to be in schools, but at the moment I go into three or four a week and I would rather go into three or four a month. That's that's my aim. Yeah, okay, okay. And yeah, I remember reading tweets about you being all over the country, yeah. like in, in one day, going to lots of different places. So... I imagine it might be a bit more restful to hand it over as well. I don't I'm think I very tired. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> I bet. Um, okay, what do I want to ask you next? Do you think that the... I guess one, of the, one of the main questions that I get asked about anxiety specifically is around what's the difference between normal anxiety that's like mm -hmm. every day and actually type of anxiety where you need to go to the doctor or you need to get some professional help. Mm -hmm. um, 
what, yeah, what's your opinion on that? I get asked that all the time. And the first thing I normally say is, I'm not in a position to assess that. I'm not a medical professional. And actually, neither are you. It's really important not to self-diagnose. Mm. But the way that you would know if you need to approach a medical professional, I think is about um, how much of your headspace it's occupying and the extent to which it's interfering with your ability to function. And also, I would say, you know, it, is this a thing that anybody would feel anxious about? And does it have an endpoint? So if you're incredibly anxious about your driving test, lots of people get nervous about that. And it's finite because at some point you're going to take that test, at which point the anxiety should go. But if you feel anxious all the time, that is um, less normal, I guess, and um, something that you should talk to someone about. Yeah, absolutely. And I wonder if there's a bit of, it's a bit damaging. I hear quite a lot of things like, um, oh, everyone's saying they're anxious these days. Mm. It's like fashionable to be anxious or something yeah. like that. Is that, I think that's quite damaging. Is that something that you see quite a lot of? Or It's something I talk about in my book, actually, is that we have the smallest emotional vocabulary of any developed nation in English, despite having more words than any other dialect. The words that we have for feelings are very limited. And so that means if, you know, if somebody says I'm feeling anxious, that could mean about 70 different things. And that's why I guess that people have the impression that everybody's saying they're anxious. But people who say that, I think have to recognize their privilege because they will be immersed in a world where people feel that they can do that. And I was incredibly irritated by there was a, a dispatches a few on a few weeks ago on Channel 4 that was making some very valid points about how we too readily prescribe antidepressants and, and when talking therapy would be more appropriate and completely agreed with all of that. But then went on to say that Awareness campaigns like, for example, Time to Change were making people think they had mental illnesses when, in fact, they were just experiencing what they described as intense emotions. And they kind of gave the impression that everybody thinks they're mentally ill and everybody's talking about it all the time. And I thought that may be true in the media, <laughs> but... Yeah, I hear horrific stories, particularly in male-dominated work environments, of people being actively bullied for expressing a real common or garden mental health issue. And if the majority of the world, there is still so much stigma and prejudice. You know, we've only just begun in terms of increasing that understanding and breaking that stigma down. And I think the... The media was very interested in mental health because it was perceived as new for a while. And now we've got that, what's often called, it's a horrible phrase, but it's called compassion fatigue, where they think the public have had enough. So we're now seeing the backlash. And it's a shame because it's undoing some of the great work that's been done. Okay. So do you think that's going to, yeah, is that going to continue then? So a backlash against people talking up, speaking up about mental health? Is that... Probably. God. Yeah, I would imagine so. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So I think it's yeah true to say that even though we see stuff about it in the media, still tons of people are struggling and not talking about it and waiting years before they get help. And um, so, yeah, just encouraging everyone listening to please speak up about it. And, you know, just talking helps. And I know that it's frustrating that there are really long waiting lists, but... 
just having connection actually controls the amount of dopamine in your brain and dopamine is what produces clarity of thought so if you have a really good chat with somebody you walk away from that conversation with better brain chemistry more able to think about how you want to move forward than you did when you came into the conversation it's not going to magically cure all of your problems but it does do something and it does have its own value okay so we did, yeah having that convers- those conversations i'm always banging on about how we need more community more community feels in our lives and um how so many people are lonely so Mm. many people are lonely do you know any stats on loneliness i'm trying to think well we had a minister for loneliness didn't we oh yeah I, i it's a combination of things isn't it that so many people now move far away from home um and also communities are more dysfunctional because of the kind of rise of the individual now uh, you know particularly if you live in a city quite often you don't even know your neighbor's name and we actually need community we're pack animals that's why no one's good at everything um because if if human being if any human being was brilliant at everything they wouldn't need anyone else and from an evolutionary point of view our best chance of survival is in a group. So we actually evolved to have to rely on one another. And when we do, we get that sense of well-being because we're living as we're supposed to live. And yet all the messages that we get from capitalism (laughs) encourage us to think of ourselves as individuals and it can be very damaging. I love the idea that we're not good at everything because we need each other and we can help each other. And that is a nice way of putting it, absolutely. Um, Is there anything else that has particularly helped you on a personal level in terms of, I don't know, certain types of therapies or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, the evidence shows that it's less important the type of therapy that your therapist practices and more important the that you trust them and feel that you have a good connection with them. And I was I shopped around because I always think that finding the right therapist is like finding the right romantic partner. You know, sometimes you have to kiss some frogs before you find <laughs> the right person. And I was going to all these therapists who were saying to me, you've got a lot of nervous energy and you really need to calm down. And that wasn't an effective message. Calm for me. down, calm I down, finger wagging. Yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> it's like, go and lie in a meadow. Brilliant, thanks. Um, and then I, I met this one therapist who gave me the best piece of advice. He said... If you think of it as you have obsessive compulsive drive and if you don't channel that into something, that energy turns inwards and it becomes really self-destructive. So he said to me, you must always have a project. And that was helpful insofar as I work in education. So even though I do other things this time of year, the summer tends to be quiet for me. But now I put things in place just to make sure that I maintain a little bit of momentum. I still have a rest. But if I have nothing in my diary, I lose my mind. And it was actually my husband who noticed this. He was like, every August, you have a complete meltdown and it's because that energy had nowhere to go that was a much more useful way of framing it than saying you know have a lavender bath yes yes <laughs> that's something I hear a lot the thing of when you slow down or when you I know people that work from home or people that even that go on holiday sometimes their anxiety can get worse because mm. they're, they're left with that that excess energy or their overthinking can kick in because there's more space so actually channeling that energy into something. Yeah. Positive. And that's and that's why having a pet is so useful because I can spend hours 
playing with my cat and stroking my cat. And it doesn't feel like a waste of time in the same way as it would if I spent those hours sitting by myself, you know, watching TV or or, or whatever. Because I I justify, I guess I justify it in my mind as, uh, you know, that the cat needs stimulus and attention, and I'm nurturing her, and that's important. Um, yeah, it, it's it's about I guess someone something else needing needing me. It's very, it's very selfish Everyone reason to get a pet. A pet but, Everyone yeah. needs a pet. Yeah. I'm desperate for a dog. I just walk around Victoria Park near where I live and just like stare at people's dogs. I do that. It's so inappropriate. But, uh, <laughs> dog owners must be used to it. Yeah, they, they love it. That's why they bought the dog. They like, <laughs> like the intervention. Um, what about, okay, so workplaces. How much responsibility do, we, do you think workplaces have? Because a lot of workplaces, I mean, they... There's so much pressure on employees, not a lot mm. of support. Surely they've got to be taking care of people better. I think so. Um, I co-founded a campaign called Where's Your Head At with Bauer Media. And it, we launched it in 2018 and it had a very simple aim. And it was to change the law so that for every physical health first aider, you had a mental health first aider. And so, you know, there is a um, provision in place so that every employer has to ensure that if you fall over or break your leg or get a nosebleed or faint or have a heart attack, there's someone on site who knows a protocol to follow. And it won't necessarily save your life, but it does increase the chances that you will emerge unscathed. By the same token, there's a course that you can go on that will teach you if, for example, your colleague is having a panic attack or even if they're suicidal, it teaches you what to say, what not to say, and then what to recommend to them as the next step. So it gives you that protocol again. And since the government have been promising us this thing, parity of esteem between physical and mental health since 2011, it struck me that that was a really simple way that they could introduce some parity into the workplace. So that was, uh, I delivered it to Downing Street in October last year. And it was debated in Parliament in January of this year. That's so cool. Uh, so well, cool. you say that, <laughs> but the government's response was, their official response was, um, we think that workplaces should be doing more than just mental health first aid. And if we make mental health first aid the law, those employers who are doing more than that will think that they they should strip down what's currently in place. They said it would become a flaw. I mean, so you're looking at me confused and you're right to look at me confused because it's a nonsense <laughs> argument. It, they might as well just have gone, we, we don't want to do this. It's too much hard oh. work. So in, as a response to that, uh, we came up with uh, a manifesto of, I think it's about seven or eight things that are a more comprehensive idea of what employers should be doing. And it has been approved throughout the third sector. So if you, you name a mental health charity, the chances are that mental health charity has approved this manifesto. And we're asking employers to sign up to it, employees to have a look at it and sort of wave it under their boss's noses, and also people to write to their local MP and ask them to get behind it. And you can find all of that at wheresyourheadat.org. Amazing. And I'll put that in the show notes as well for people. Thank you. That's, I just find your work so inspiring. And I love the fact that you are just making things happen. And yeah, good, good for you. Um, what's the, what's the, I'll ask you another like broad question. Um, what's the best advice that you've ever been given? 
The best advice I've ever been given is my mum said to me, some people are just knobheads. <laughs> and, and what Never she was a true statement. <laughs> yeah. No, what she was trying to say was it. I think so often we, we we seek closure and resolution, and we want people to recognise when they when they've treated us badly. We want people to recognise and acknowledge it in order to feel that we can move on. But some people aren't capable of that of giving us that. And if our happiness relies on somebody else fundamentally changing their character, that's a very precarious position to put yourself in. So you have to accept sometimes that people behave badly. Um, some people are just knobheads. <laughs> and sometimes you just have to let it go. For your own sanity, you just have to think, you know, that that person gave me all they were capable of giving and uh, and move on. I love that. I'm going to remember that. <laughs> I'm thinking about all the the stuff that Matt Haig has been subjected to over the last couple of weeks. Oh, if wow. people, listeners don't know, Matt Haig is um, an amazing author and he writes a lot about mental health and he tweets and Instagrams about mental health, but has had some horrendous uh, tweets and he shares all the, all the things that he, he gets mm. sent and... Um, yeah, I hope he can continue to like stay strong in the in the face of all that knobheadness. Me too. Although I had lunch with my friend uh, Rachel Riley yesterday, who similarly um, she doesn't talk about mental health. She's done a lot of work around anti-Semitism recently, and gets trolled relentlessly for it from um, the really far left. And what she said is that she's discovered that. There are certain um, organisations who target high-profile people, like, for example, Matt Haig, hoping that that person will call them out by retweeting what they've and and putting an answer to to what they've said. And they know that 99% of that that person's followers will look at that and go, that's horrific, how could anyone say that? But 1% might think, oh, that's interesting and look at their profile and kind of get sucked into that ideology. And that's how the alt-right, for example, has grown by doing that. Oh, my God. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Be careful what you... uh, What you retweet. What you give your attention to, your energy to. Yeah. I've heard this a few times recently, like, you've got to be careful not to give too much energy and, like, airtime to the things that are just not very helpful or kind. Um, Amazing. Can you can you tell us about if um, people want to find out more about you and what you're up to? Where can they find you? Uh, you can find me at natashadevan.com. It, all of my work is on there. Um, I have just started, um, well, I say just started, we're on season two of my podcast, which is called Fact or Bull. And it doesn't really have anything to do with mental health, which is actually very good for my mental health. It means I have something else to talk about. But the idea behind the show is I present it with um, Dr. Keon West, who is a social psychologist at Goldsmiths University. And we take a statement every week, for example, gender is a social construct and we invite an expert in the, into the studio to debate whether that statement is fact or bull <laughs> and it's completely misnamed podcast because pretty much every week we conclude that it's neither fact nor bull and in fact the truth is somewhere in the middle <laughs> and it's all incredibly nuanced but it's a lot of fun so um, mm. if you want to check that out look at fact underscore bull and you'll see all the links on there Brilliant, brilliant. And when is your new book coming out for people that want to check that out? Uh, My new book is out on the 2nd of April next year, 2020. 
amazing. And I definitely recommend A Beginner's Guide to Being Mental. I, I read it on Kindle, but it's in all the bookshops and on Amazon. And, and audiobook. If you want to listen to me read it to you. Oh, is it? It's on audiobook is as well. Is it? Okay, excellent. I love an audiobook. <laughs> um, thank you so, so much for speaking to me today. I've loved this conversation. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed this as much as I enjoyed recording it. Come and let me know over on Instagram as usual. I'm at Chloe Brotheridge and you can just let me know what you thought of this episode. What are you taking away from it? I'd really love you to share that with me over on Instagram. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please do share it with a friend. Subscribe in the iTunes app or in the podcast app if you're on an iPhone and leave me a little review. It means such a lot to me to have those reviews so that we can really spread the word about this free resource far and wide. Anyway, I hope you have a wonderful week. I'm sending you loads of love and I hope you'll tune in again soon.